I wanted to start off this morning with two quotes uh, from two people. The first one you may be familiar with, and I'll, I'll throw it out there and see if you know who sa- said it. It's a very common quote. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Anybody know who said that? Oprah. <laughs> Oprah. <laughs> Not Oprah. <laughs> Good guess, though. She does have a lot of quotes. A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer, the great author. What, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. This second quote, I think will surprise you who said it. When you believe in God, you've got to believe in the all-powerful God. He's not just God. He's the all-powerful God. And he has total control over everyone's life. The devil, on the other hand, is a real character that's trying his hardest to tear your life apart. Who was that? Was it Max Lucado, Charles Swindoll, Alice Cooper? (laughs) The rocker, Alice Cooper said that. I heard word about 10, 12 years ago that he went through an experience where he, where he uh, put his faith in God. And he said that when you believe in God, you've got to believe in the all-powerful God. I want to ask you guys this morning, is that the God you believe in? You go beyond believing in just God to believing that he's an all-powerful God in complete control. That's what this chapter is all about. Our main idea this morning is because God is all-powerful, I will worship Him only. We'll see that illustrated vividly in this familiar chapter. But to set the stage, we want to start in verse 1 of Daniel chapter 3. And we're going to start with a, a king who is frantically trying to establish his own significance. We all want to make a mark on the world. He's looking to do it in his own power and for his own glory. And if you seek to do that for you and in your own glory, it will always be a frantic, never-ending search. It will leave you constantly restless. As we said last week, the, the human soul is restless until it finds its rest in God. Check this out. Verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. That's, that's 90 feet tall. Think 10-story building. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Now you remember the context here, right? Just last week, Nebuchadnezzar had got a dream from God. And in his dream, he was the gold head. His empire was the gold head, but God had told him, your empire is not going to last. The rest of the, the body is silver, bronze, iron, and clay, and there's another kingdom, God's kingdom, that's eventually going to destroy them all. 
We don't know how long after that dream this was, but you notice what Nebuchadnezzar did with this image that he set up. He made the whole thing gold. And many people look at it and say, what he's trying to do here is, is say in a visual way, I don't like that dream. I'm not going to abide by that dream. My empire is going to last forever. There ain't going to be no silver, bronze, iron, clay, or especially no rock from heaven that's going to destroy it. My empire is where I'm going to find my significance. All gold. Not solid, because they say he probably didn't have enough gold in his whole empire to make the thing solid, but probably wood-coated statue of gold. And most likely, not even a statue of himself. Egyptians would build statues of themselves. Most likely, they believe this is a statue of his patron god, Nabu, who he's named after, Nebuchadnezzar. So that the idea is, you worship the god I worship, and in doing so, you're, you're proclaiming your loyalty to me. So he sends a message out through his heralds. There's all these officials all over the empire from different countries. And he has just started his empire, so he needs to solidify that all these people recognize Nebuchadnezzar as the supreme ruler. That's, what, that's why he does this. He's trying desperately to build his own significance. Quite a change from the end of Daniel chapter 2. You remember when God had told him through Daniel... This is what your dream means. You remember Nebuchadnezzar had said, Surely, Daniel, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. He made that admission, but don't you know sometimes we, we quickly forget. It seems that he forgot about this God of gods and king of kings and, and come back to his own importance. A man named John Owen talked about this pattern in our lives. He talked about the difference between spiritual diversion and true conversion. There's a difference. He said, uh, oftentimes for us, it's like this, as a traveler in his way, meeting with a violent storm of thunder and rain, immediately turns out of his way to some house or tree for his shelter, but yet this causes him not to give over his journey. So soon as the storm is over, he returns to his way and progresses again. So it is with man in bondage to sin. They're in a course of pursuing their lusts. The law meets with them in a storm of thunder and lightning from heaven, terrifies and hinders them in their way. This turns them for a season out of their course. They'll run to prayer or amendment of life for some shelter from the storm of wrath, which is feared coming upon their consciences. But is their course stopped? Are their principles altered? Not at all in many cases. So soon as the storm is over, so that they begin to wear out that sense and the terror that was upon them, they return to their former course in the service of sin again. So how many people believe Nebuchadnezzar's back and forth here, there wasn't a genuine conversion in his life, more of a, a spiritual diversion. He's getting back to his own, old ways. Uh, interesting fact, when it talks about 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, there's two sixes there. Some attach this to the, the number of man in the book of Revelation 666. This is an early symbol of man is most important, my empire is most important, God is not. And this is probably close to the same place where the Tower of Babel was built in Genesis chapter 11. You remember that the men wanted to build this tower to heaven to why? Make a name for themselves. That's what Nebuchadnezzar's all about here. And he's frantic about it. 
verse 4. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you're commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. I want you to imagine this scene on a, on a plain outside the city. We don't know how many thousands of people there were, but imagine them spread out there in front of this statue. And, and this music, it's so diverse and, and beautiful. This was like a symphony, horn, flute. The zither and the lyre are stringed instruments, the harp as well. Pipe, they believe that was probably some kind of early bagpipe. Soon as you hear that, bow down and worship. If you don't, you'll be thrown into a blazing furnace. Why a blazing furnace? Well, there is most likely one nearby for the building of the image in the first place. When you have to make a base for something like that, you have to make bricks. And they believe that the furnaces in those days were probably shaped like milk bottles, where you start at the top with a narrow opening at the top, and then it would go down like this and have a a door in the side that you could see in from the side. And they would build it on the side of a hill so that they could throw the materials in there to, if it was iron, to, to get the iron ore out of it or whatever. So opening at the top, door in the side, a visual image for all those people to see. If you do not bow down, this is what will come of you. Next we see the response of the majority, followed by the response of three young men. Verse 7, therefore as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, Zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. That word denounced means to eat the flesh of. Kind of like today we say to chew someone out. This is how these other men felt about these three men. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of all these instruments and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. This is what you said, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews. They believe these astrologers hated the Jews because you remember they had been promoted above these natives. So they go out of their way to say, some Jews, whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. It's almost like they're making a veiled assault on Nebuchadnezzar himself. You put them in this position. They conveniently forget that what their prayers and the revelation to Daniel is what saved their lives. They've, they've since forgotten that. Some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you. Your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. I want you to imagine that plain filled with people, all of them but three, bowed down on their faces. Three men standing up in the middle of that mass of people. There's two ways to look at that scene. One is from a temporary earthly perspective, which says, These men are crazy. The other is from an eternal perspective, whereas Jesus says in the New Testament, broad is the road that leads to destruction. 
Narrow is the way that leads to life. We'll often come to those moments in our life where, where we face a decision and we'll feel the pressure of the majority. The pressure to go this way, to say this, to believe this. And at that moment, we will face the same choice those three young men face that day. Will we view it from the, the temporary perspective where I'm crazy if I don't do this or from God's perspective? Narrow is the way that leads to life. These men who accused the three got exactly what they wanted out of Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 13, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? You can see that he has some level of respect for them or he's aware of how much time and effort's been poured into them because he's going to give them a second chance. He says, now, and Justin pointed out, he probably said this like an angry parent trying to get his child to do, do what you've been telling him. Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship... The image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. The next phrase, he, he crosses a line that God doesn't like being crossed. He says, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? He looks in the face of these men and their God and says, what God will be able to rescue you from me, mighty Nebuchadnezzar? And you remember, God doesn't take well to these challenges, whether it's Pharaoh saying no to him repeatedly, or the battle on Mount Carmel, or a time when Israel in the city of Jerusalem was surrounded by Assyria, the empire prior to Babylon. 2 Kings 18 tells us there was an Assyrian king that surrounded the city of Jerusalem and they t he told the people, do not listen to Hezekiah, your king, for he is misleading you when he says, the Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his, his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Same pride, right? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena, and Iva? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? He's saying, I beat all these other lands. Their God couldn't stop me. What makes your God any different? Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save his land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? And maybe you've had people say that to you as you go through the trials in your life. What can your God do to save you in what you're going through? What, what can he do? In this situation, when Assyria surrounded Jerusalem, you'll remember the answer. Hezekiah prayed out to the God that he believed in. And 2 Kings 19.35 says, that night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp that surrounded the city of God. One angel, 185,000 men. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. And Nebuchadnezzar should have been a better student of history before he let that phrase roll off his tongue. But you see his frantic search for significance in all of this. My glory, my kingdom. Now we're going to see the confident faith of three young men who rest their value 
in God's glory and in his eternal kingdom. As you look at the contrast, we've got to ask ourselves, am I that frantic searcher for my own glory? Or today, am I resting in the fact that God's kingdom will endure forever and it's his glory that matters? Look at their, their faith in the face of his franticness. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, verse 16, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. In the original text, the we is emphasized. What they're saying is, we don't need to respond to you in this. Our God's going to respond to you. He's going to give you the answer to the question you asked. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. There's the the belief we talked about at the beginning. Because God is all-powerful, I will worship him only. They believe that in the fiber of their souls, right? Yet listen to this. Even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. That's the essence of faith right there. And I want to bring out two points for right here. First, we mentioned already, they found their significance not in their own glory, but in the glory of God and his kingdom. Samuel Rutherford said this, duties are ours, events are the Lord's. What did he mean? He, he means that we are to do what we know to be true. We are to obey what we know and leave the results to God. He said, God will establish his kingdom in his own time and in his own way. Our task is that of obedience to his revealed word and will. These young men didn't know what was going to happen, but they knew God had said, do not worship any other gods, and they obeyed him. Significance in God's kingdom. Second point here is a question that we've all got to wrestle with. Why do you follow God? Do you follow God because of who he is primarily or because of the good things he can do for you? This is a a crucial question here. You follow God because you love him with all your heart. Or do you follow him primarily because of what he can do for you and yours? See, these men loved God more than life itself. They knew the the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength. They didn't only know that. That was the essence of their heartbeat. They loved God more than anything, more than fame, more than position, more than security in this situation. They echoed the heart of Paul. Acts 20, 24, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. They echoed the the heart of Job who said in the middle of all of his trials, though he slay me, though he lets all this into my life, yet I will trust in him. Paul again, I long to bring glory to God by life or death as long as God is exalted. We've got to wrestle with that today. Do I primarily love God because I want him to do something good for me in this situation, or do I love him for who he is? Because a lot of what passes for faith these days is actually bargaining 
with God. It's, it's, we, we think we're bargaining with God. Hey, God, if you do this and this and this for me, I'll walk with you. But the moment he has a different plan, the moment he makes us wait, the moment he allows something into our lives that we didn't see coming, we say, I'm out of here. I'm done. That is not faith. That is bargaining. And that's, not, that's a far cry from, from biblical faith. I, I think of it like this. Friday was a big day for Cleveland sports. Okay. <laughs> All right, many of us are rejoicing because LeBron James has come home. That's primarily because we haven't had a sports championship in Cleveland since 1964. It's been a while. It it created almost a religious fervor on Friday. I even jokingly attached a proverb to the the whole deal on my Facebook wall. He's known as King James in Proverbs 21.1 says, The Lord directs the heart of the king toward all who please him. I said, see, I was joking. Scott Madsen replied with Proverbs 26, 11, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a <laughs> fool returns to his folly. We had some fun. Uh, but bottom line is we're excited, but why am I excited? Why is our family excited about LeBron James coming back? Is, is it because we have a personal relationship with him and love him and love hanging out with him and we just love who he is? Nope. We just want a ring in Cleveland. It's all about what, what can you do for me in my, in my city, right? That's how it is for some of us with God, if we're honest. We barely know who he is, and we barely care. We just want to know, God, what can you do for me in mine? That is not the, the faith of these men. They say, God, we love you regardless of what happens. A.W. Tozer, we quoted him earlier, instead of Oprah. He said two more things along these lines. He said, perhaps it takes a purer faith to praise God for unrealized blessings than for those we once enjoyed or those we enjoy now. Do you praise God for the unrealized blessings that you haven't yet seen, that you have to wait for? He also says, sometimes I go to God and say, God, if you never answer another prayer while I live on this earth, I will still worship you as long as I live and in the ages to come for what you have already done. God's already put me so far in debt that if I were to live one million millenniums, I couldn't pay him for what he's done for me. Could you say that? If if God never said yes to one more prayer in your life, those things you want, those things you wish for, that I'll still worship him. That's true faith. Let's, let's go on. You can imagine Nebuchadnezzar's shock. I mean, he's the most powerful ruler in the world, and these men have just responded to him in no uncertain terms that they, they don't fear him. They, they serve a greater king. Verse 19 says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his attitude toward them changed. The the original language there gives the sense that his whole face changed. You ever see that when somebody gets so angry at you? Their whole face changed. That was him. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual, which you can see he's being irrational in his anger because that would make it quicker, right? If he really wanted to torture him, he would have cooled it down, but... In his anger, he's out of control here. Heat it seven times hotter, and he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, 
these three, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace, the top of that furnace that I was talking about. These furnaces, they believe, could get up close to 1,800 degrees as they got that iron ore out of, out of the iron. And they had bellows at the bottom. And that's how they probably cranked that heat up, as, as hot as they could get it. So hot that you see it killed the, the men that threw them in. Now you watch the all-powerful God's response. Verse 24, Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, your majesty. He's looking in the side of this furnace and watching what's going on. He said, Look, I can imagine him shaking a bit. (laughs) I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. I imagine, uh, I try to put myself in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's shoes. Uh, that first being thrown in there, the, the, regardless how much faith I have, the fear that would leap up in me. But then when they realize, A, that we're not burning up, and B, there's someone like a son of the gods here, be it an angel or be it Jesus himself. We don't know for sure. Imagine them as they slowly come to realize what's going on. Can you imagine walking around in a fiery furnace? We're not burning. Uh, the, the awe of these men. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. Come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. You can bet they did. Evidently, there are a lot of people that could see what's going on in this furnace. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched. It's like God showing off. There was no smell of fire on them. They didn't even smell like smoke. And I want to bring out a couple more points here. The first one is that uh, when we walk into the trials in our lives as God's children, God is with us. Regardless of whether that was an angel he sent or his very own son, we know for us it's his son who said, I will be with you always. God is with us. These Jews knew that Isaiah had written a hundred years earlier in chapter 43. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burnt. You can bet if these guys knew that verse, they were saying it over and over through this process. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, do not be afraid, for I am with you. One more from Psalm 66. These Jews knew their scriptures. For you, O God, have tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net. You laid affliction on our backs. 
You have caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, but you brought us out to rich fulfillment. This is such a a promise that we need to hold on to because never is your faith tested as much as when you come into a trial because the devil's got plans for that trial, right? He wants to destroy your faith. He wants you to say, God doesn't love you. God forgot about you. God dropped the ball here. Why do you follow him? But as Warren Wiersbe pointed out, the devil's goal is to destroy your faith. God's goal is to develop your faith. See, just as the iron ore was brought out and the impurities were brought out of that iron in that furnace, in their trial and in ours, the trials reveal what kind of faith we have. First Peter Peter may have been thinking about this instance. We don't know. But he said, For a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. He's saying those, those trials reveal what kind of faith we have. And we've got to ask, do I have that gold kind of faith? Do I have authentic faith that can be trusted to bring glory to God? Or do I have something less than that, that when the trials start, I bail? And I take the easy road, even if it means a sinful road. God is with us. That enables us to have that gold-like type of faith. Secondly, I want to point out that they had freedom in the flames. You notice it said they walked around unbound and unharmed. The chains there, what are the ropes that he had used to, to bind them were released. And I just see, I don't know if this is exactly what the text means, but I see this beautiful picture that when we stay true to God, even when we are thrown into the fire, even when we walk through the trials, there's a freedom that we have in knowing that I'm walking with God. I look at this picture and I I believe Nebuchadnezzar was the one who was bound by his own insecurity and his own pride, his own fear of not being honored. He's frantic on the outside, outside of the fire. They're free because they're walking with God. There's a, a psalm that said, I will walk at liberty for I seek your precepts or your ways. What I want to say is there's a a freedom that comes even in the trial that God's believer has as they walk with him that is far greater than what the world views as as freedom. All of Nebuchadnezzar's wealth and power could not do anything to assuage the insecurity in his soul. I believe he was in the greater prison at this moment than those three young men in the fire who put their trust in God. Now check out what happens again. This is like a cycle. You remember in chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar realized that God's people were healthier even though they only ate vegetables. In chapter 2, he admitted that God was a God of wisdom because he gave Daniel the dream. Here we go again. Uh, Some have said this book is like a spiral staircase that that keeps spinning around the same theme. You know, God works like that sometimes. He gives us the same lesson over and over and over, and sometimes it takes us a while like Nebuchadnezzar. He said in verse 28, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. 
Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. He likes, he likes that. Remember that in chapter 2 also. For no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Now, we're going to go on and see in chapter 4 that this is most likely not a permanent conversion here again because we're going to go around the same spiral staircase. It's not so much like Nebuchadnezzar saying, hey, I embrace this God. He calls him the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's more like those people in our lives that say to us, hey, it's wonderful you have that faith for you. That's good. <laughs> that, that's more uh, the impression we get from, from Nebuchadnezzar. As we look at this awesome example, I want to ask us a couple questions. First, do you believe in an all-powerful God? You believe in Him. Then four questions. One, where do you find your significance? Is it in you and your glory? Or is it in God's eternal kingdom? Good way to check. Are you frantic? Are you restless? Are you constantly working to, to build your glory? Or are you resting in His kingdom? Why do you follow God? You follow him because you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, or do you follow him because of what he can do for you, what he can get you out of, what he can bless you with? Do you believe he's with you even in the fire? And do you believe that there's freedom to be experienced even in the flames, even in the middle of the trial? I want to close with a quote because as long as we are content to, to play church, we probably won't have to worry about too many trials like this. As long as we're working hard to blend in with our culture and not stand out too much, we probably don't need to worry about any of this. But I like this quote. It says, The advance guard of the Christian church, which seeks to apply Christ's teachings more rigidly, to individual and social life has to face ostracism, has to face misrepresentation from the world and the fossil church for not serving their gods nor worshiping the golden image which they have set up. You hear what that quote's saying? There's, there's some of us in this room that are going to look at Christ's teachings and say, yeah, that really needs to be how I live my life regardless of what the world and the church around me does. I've got to follow him. And when we do that, we will find ourselves in the place of these three young men. Maybe not exactly the same, but we'll need this God who's all-powerful. Father, I thank you for this word from your word, uh, the hope that it gives us, the faith of these three young men. God, I pray that as we walk through our own trials, and, and I know even from this morning, there are some in this room. Uh, Father, they, they need your touch. They need to sense your presence just like those three young men did in the furnace. Uh, please do that, Lord. May your presence be known in a, a powerful way uh, so that it comforts those in this room in their own trials, so that it enables them to find their significance in you and to love you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to walk in freedom. 
Uh, Lord, may we not give in to the lie that says, hey, there's no peace to be had until this trial's over. I believe those young men experienced your peace and providence before they even came out of that furnace. They experienced it before they even were thrown in. And it's not because of their circumstances, it's because of you. God, give us that kind of faith. You are an all-powerful God. Greater than any of the false gods that are promoted and, and worshipped around this world. You are the only God. And we, together, all in this room who, who would uh, covenant with me on this, we're, we're going to worship you only. Regardless of the cost. Give us that faith and give us that strength and the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord. Pray that as we prepare to collect our offering, that it will bring glory to you out of thankful hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I believe one of the places this is tested the most today is when it comes to the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we feel alone and ostracized when we say that Jesus is the only way to salvation. But this morning, I want to give us a chance together, if you believe that, to affirm that. I'm going to quote words from Jesus' own mouth. And if you believe it this morning, I want you to shout out an amen at the end like you really believe it. And it's as much for each of us individually as it is for those others in the room because we need to know that if I'm a Shadrach, there's a Meshach and Abednego standing next to me. That's going to help us all. I'm going to quote Jesus' own words, and if you believe them this morning, regardless of how the world feels, I want you to say amen. Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Amen.